This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good afternoon, everyone. It's currently 3 o'clock. We're going to continue uh, and, find, and conclude with our final seminar this afternoon. Um, are you guys, how are you guys feeling? Okay? Good. Good. You guys have a good lunch? The ravioli was out of this world. It's a lot of carbohydrates, so uh, make sure you guys are, 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 are alert for this. I'm going to ask this question that I ask one more time. How many of you, this is your first time here in the seminar? Okay. Welcome, welcome. Uh, Lord, have mercy upon you. You will have no context to what, what we're talking about uh, this seminar. Hopefully this will make sense to you, and if it does, praise the Lord. If it if it doesn't, just listen to the previous five. <clears throat> uh, the, the seminar is entitled The Sanctuary Rebellions in Adventism. Talk, this is a part of a larger series called Revolution of Destiny. The Sanctuary Context is Act 6. Act 6. Uh, I think this is crucial for every Seventh-day Adventist to know about the history of Seventh-day Adventism. Some of this history is not good stuff. And uh, though discouraging, I think it is healthy for all young Adventists and older Adventists to know what uh, our history all entails. Uh, please bow your heads with me. We're going to have a word of prayer. We're going to get into the, the material proper here this afternoon. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have been so kind to us, so merciful to us. And uh, you are ministering in the sanctuary. We've talked about this for the last five uh, seminars. Father, as we come to this last uh, seminar, uh, Father, we, I, I need your help uh, to articulate what you would have your people to know. Father, we all need the mind of Christ. Uh, we ask for humility when encountering sacred things. And uh, we just pray that the character that is espoused in the sanctuary may be reflected in all of us. Be with each of my brothers and sisters in a very special way. This afternoon we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sanctuary uh, is often referred to uh, different components in, in the Bible. Um, if you go to First uh, Corinthians chapter three verse sixteen, please open your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter three verse sixteen. And again, I know you; it's up on the board, up on the screen here. I ask you to turn to your Bibles to the actual area. Now, if you have a book, it's it's a, you're at an advantage. Um, the touch uh, phones, you can get through it quicker, but you can't get the context of what's going on in chapter 2 and chapter 4 in one shot. Chapter 3, if you're there, please say amen. amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And the context in 1 Corinthians are people are fighting. Question, are there still people fighting in church? Yes. Has there as much changed in 2,000 years? Not much. People still fight. And do we still need Pauls who can enter into churches that are fighting and to rectify some of the, the misunderstandings and some of really, really the carnality, uh, the carnal hearts that are in churches? If you go to chapter 1, <clears throat> go to chapter 1, verse 10. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. 
Verse 12, now this I say, every one of you has says, I am a Paul, I'm a Paul, a Cephas, and Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? You were baptized in the name, were you baptized in the name of Paul? This was read by uh, Pastor Peppers uh, yesterday morning. Um, the whole theme in the book of 1 Corinthians is, this is a fighting church, and they're splitting. And uh, the context later on in chapter 2 is that we're all trying to understand the deep things of God. And Paul is saying, essentially, that even when churches are fighting and they're splitting, there's something about God's character to be seen while in the midst of that, that, that the tribulation. Does that make sense? And so uh, he says it's something to, to boast over. And later in chapter 3, uh, he says in verse 3, For you are yet carnal, for where uh, is there among you envying, strife, and divisions? Are you, are you not carnal? Walk as men. And then he uses this very interesting analogy. Go to verse 9. For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's what? You are God's building. If you're there, you see in verse 9, you see two, two um, uh, object, object lessons, uh, image, images there. One is God's husbandry, God's work. The second is God's building. And later on, he says God's building. The foundation of God's building is Jesus Christ. Yes? And then, skip down to verse uh, 16. Know ye not that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells within you. If you actually do an exegetical study of this chapter, God is saying that all of you guys, church comes together. We need to reflect God the Father, God's work, God's husbandry. We need to reflect God's building, the foundation of being Jesus Christ. And we also reflect God the Spirit. Those, these three persons, we put them together, and what do we call them? This is the Godhead. Okay? Or another common word for that is? The Trinity. So the unity that in, exists in the Trinity should be reproduced in the unity of his people. That's basically his premise he's saying in chapter 3. In verse 16 says, Don't you know, and ye there, is not you plural, uh, you singular, it's you plural, meaning all of yous together. Yeah? In Spanish, it's ustedes. In French, I don't speak it, so I don't know. But in English, it's, it's all yous. Yeah? So, don't you know that all of yous are the temple of God? And so what we see when the, when the sanctuary is being cleansed in heaven, there are, there, are, there are heavenly things, there are deep things that are going on that we talked about in 701, 2, 3, 4, 5. But once that cleansing is happening, there needs to be a reflection of that here on earth where there is a, is a unity existing amongst God's people coming together and a unity that has not been seen and it's been, is a reflection of the Trinity of the, God, of the Godhead unity. Does that make sense? And, and some people don't believe in the Trinity. They have a problem. That, do we believe in three gods? We do not believe in three gods. We believe in one God, three persons, one essence. And the reason why we believe this is this. If God is a monad being, and we're not here to dissect and define God, but if God is a monad being, and we, we define God as God as love, according to 1 John chapter 5, in the beginning, before God was ever uh, involved in human creation and in all the universe, when God was by himself, and if God is a monad and God is love, who was God loving? He's loving himself. Then the origin of all existence is based not on selflessness, it's based on selfishness. But here you have God, and he, there's a trini, there is a Trinitarian community going on. One essence, one God, but there's a plurality of persons within. 
that he, God the Father is divesting himself all and, and, and completely loving God the Son and God the Spirit. But God the Spirit is divesting all of himself, loving God the Father and God the Son. And da, 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 da. That the, the, the origin point of all essence and all creation is selflessness. It's love. Amen? And so we believe that the church should be a reflection of that community. Amen, everybody? And so we see the sanctuary, another word for the sanctuary is the remnant, that we are, this, uh, 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 not we individually, that we together are also another manifestation of the sanctuary. Do you understand? Look around you in this room. Everyone look around. Look around. Say hi to everybody. <laughs> it's totally weird. <laughs> in this room, there are white people in this room. Amen? White people say hi. Okay, I know this is not politically correct, Caucasian or North American descent, or Europe, whatever, whatever, whatever. Just, just use the, the terms that are familiar. Okay, white people, white people are not the only people that are saved. Amen? There are black people in this room. Black people say hi. Black people are not the only people that are saved. Asian people say hi. Wow. Yeah, Asians are going to take over the world. <laughs> Asians are not the only people who are saved. Before Jesus comes, there needs to be a unity amongst God's people never seen before on this earth. Amen? There is zero racism in God's church. Complete unity. Amen? And it's a fulfillment of prophecy that as you look around, even in this room, and this room is a small representation of GYC out there, and prayerfully, GYC can be a nice representation of the worldwide church. Does the worldwide church have some, some hiccups to go through? Yes. But we believe with this upcoming generation, we can change that. Amen? Amen? And the fact that we have Indonesians here, Indians, uh, Islander, blacks, white people, uh, White Europeans, white Canadians. Canadians, are there Canadians here? Okay. Praise the Lord that when you have a, a, a and this, this, is, this, is, this is clear ramifications of the sanctuary doctrine, you understand. That when you have God's people all coming together, it is not the building that is holy, but it is God's people congregating together that makes it holy. Do you understand the difference? When you enter a church... A Seventh-day Adventist church, that church is not holy. Now, should that church be, should, be, should it be respected and should you, should you be screaming in the, in the, in the sanctuary and, and, and partying? No, you shouldn't. It should be respected. But is it holy ground? It is not. In the sanctuary, in the Catholic system, that ground is holy ground because God's presence is there. So when, what's going on? In the Seventh-day Adventist worship, what's happening is Sabbath is when God enters the very essence of time. In the Catholic system, God does not enter into time. He enters into space. Are you guys following what I'm saying? But when it's Sabbath, the minute that sun goes down on Friday, God enters the very, very fabric of time. Don't, I don't understand how that works, but that's what he, that's what he does. Meaning the very time that one becomes, becomes holy then when God's people come together and worship Him in that time, whatever building we're in, that becomes God's worship hall. Amen? 
So we could be worshiping in the convention center or a hot dog stand, but as long as God's people are coming together under a unified mind and under the Holy Spirit, that is the true sanctuary. Amen? And what's happening is this. Then when God's people are meeting here on earth, all of heaven worships the Lord in Sabbath too also. Sabbath is a moment where heaven and earth are joining together in worshiping God. All local churches are uplinking their worship services to heaven. And the angels and all the universe and human beings are worshiping the Lord together on Sabbath. Now, don't ask me how the time zone thing works, and I don't know about that, okay? But this is, the, this is a larger meaning of Sabbath. Amen, friends? So it says here, don't you know that all the years are the temple of God? And when we have divisions in the church, strifes in the church, jealousies in the church, and especially the spirit of competition, that is ruining the atmosphere for the Holy Spirit. Do you understand? So next time you see someone who is a, of, a, of a different uh, manifestation than you are, give him a handshake and give him a hug and say, hey, let's be part of the remnant together. Amen? 2 Corinthians 6, 16. What agreement has the temple of God with, with who? With idols. For you are the temple of the living God. As God has says, I will dwell with them, I will walk in them, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And I, I don't know if this point is getting across. There is a, a, a communitarian kind of thinking in the, in the New Testament. In the Western uh, culture, it's all about me. I am coming to worship, and what can I get out of it? But there's something about me coming into a larger group and losing myself and becoming one with this entire crowd. And there's something awesome about, I don't know about you, when I come to GYC or any large meeting and everyone sings a hymn together. You know, you stand up and you sing holy, holy, holy and everyone sing the same note. I know there's a couple brothers who don't sing the same note. They're a little bit off and it's kind of weird and they're like, man, that guy's off key. But everyone else is on the same key. There's something like awesome about this. And Ellen White says there's nothing like singing together that promotes unity. Profound. And guess what? In the church today, the one issue where we don't have unity is in the area of music. Okay? So we need to have a profound unity amongst God's people. This is the reflection of of, of the sanctuary in heaven. Um, Ephesians 2.21, In whom all the building fitly framed together grows unto a holy temple in the Lord. The second manifestation is the body. And uh, something happens, you know this very well, amen? We use this verse all the time. In 1 Corinthians 6.19, it says, What? Don't you know that your body, singular, you as an individual, is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and are you not your own? And, and ye, ye are not your own. I'm sorry, ye are not your own. This is where the health message comes. We talked about in the Day of Atonement. We are not to be vegetarian or, or all these health uh, reform stuff to be healthy, but to be holy. Verse 20, you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God where? In your body and also in your spirit, which are God's. And so the human body, okay, your, your very physical being is a place where the Holy Spirit is, is working and, 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 uh, and hanging out question, what is Jesus doing right now? This is one really easy way to, to evangelize, uh, to do evangelism. I, uh, this, this is from uh, um, I Winsome Witnessing, Winsome Witnessing or Winsome, Winsome something. Uh, 
And uh, this, this verse, Revelation 22, verse 12, very, very interesting verse. The Bible says, and behold, I come, what? My reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. And the implica- implication is this, when Jesus comes, he's going to give his reward with him, yeah? Meaning the decision has already been made. And so if the decision has already been made, then the judgment does not occur at the second coming of Jesus, but occurs at a previous time to 2JC. Does this make sense? And this is one thing that, that, that one, one verse that can start off and saying, hey, uh, it's very interesting. Revelation 22 says when he comes, his reward is already with him. If his reward is already with him, that means that, that it's already been decided. That's very interesting because according to Revelation 14, the, the hour of the judgment is what, what time, right? Right now. And so what does that mean? You can explain about the British people and all those things, okay? In the history of the Amethyst Church, the sanctuary has been attacked. And it's been attacked by two sets of people. The first five you see are, uh, are from the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Some of them are former pastors, and some of them have had catastrophic effects on the Seventh-day Adventist Church. The last two things here are from non-Adventists. In the 1860s, there was a guy named B.F. Snook and Walter H. Brinkerhoff. 1900s, you have Dudley Kenwright, Albion Ballinger, and John Harvey Kellogg. You guys all know Kellogg? Okay, he's not the serial guy. He's the serial guy's older brother who looks like the KFC guy. Yeah? You guys know what I'm talking about? Like the colonel. Yeah, the colonel. He's not the colonel. He's, he's, uh, he's Kellogg. Well, in 1930, you have uh, Louis Conradi and W.W. Fletcher. In the 1940s, you have E.B. Jones. And in the 1980s, you have Robert Brinsmead and Desmond Ford. And I don't know why these guys all have initials, but it's like, you know, if you have two initials and a last name, you're almost predestined to be apostate for the Adventist Church. That's not the case. Uh, in the 1980s, there is a brilliant man named, named Desmond Ford. He was a seminary, prof- uh, a theology professor uh, in North America as well, I believe in Australia. Because of his writings, because of his writings, one-third of the Australian church left and are no, no longer sent the Adventists. Uh, in the 80s, there was a huge exodus away from the church. And as a response to Desmond Ford, and some of you who are older, you should be familiar with this name, Desmond Ford, Yes. Uh, from that point on, no one named their kid Desmond in the Adventist church. Okay? Uh, for those who are younger, maybe this name is, is, is new to you. He has no relation, to, to my knowledge, to Henry Ford. Uh, but these are, these are uh, brilliant men who contributed to the church, but they had a very interesting view that we're going to talk about today. Non-Adventist, you have Walter Martin. He's the uh, guy who wrote the book, The Kingdom of the Cults. Are you guys familiar with that book? Seventh-day Adventist church was once included in the book, The Kingdom of the Cults. And in this book, you have every chapter is a different cult. And included in this, in this book is the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints, also known to be the Mormons. But after continued dialogue, uh, they, they put us in the, as an appendix. So we're not a cult, but we're not orthodox. We're in, a, in an intermediate stage called heterodox. Called what, everybody? And they say, we believe in the same Jesus, we believe in the same atonement, but the atonement stages are different because we believe in one unique doctrine, that being, guess which one? The sanctuary doctrine. Okay? And we're going to look at some of the, uh, the reservations that they have. Uh, Donald Barnhouse was similar to Walter Martin. They have two other guys, Norman Dowdy and Anthony Hokema. Anthony Hokema is a seminary professor, was a seminary professor at Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, I think of the Reformed uh, faith there. The two main injections against the sanctuary message are, number one, there is no biblical basis for the heavenly sanctuary. 
And I hope after five seminars, this number one can easily be dismissed. Amen? Uh, we looked at Hebrews 8, verse 1 and 2. We looked at various passages in Exodus. We looked at Revelation 11, verse 19. I mean, there's, there definitely is something in the, in, the heavenly, in the heavens that where God is residing, and there's something going on there. Um, a lot of people of you have asked, hey, is it a real building? Is it not a real building? I'll tell you this. This is the same answer I gave to somebody else. At the seminary, uh, there was an old professor, and he came up to uh, the class, and someone asked him the same question. And he raises the question to everyone else. He's like, how many of you want to know what the heavenly sanctuary is made out of? And he was a bit older, and he had a husky voice, and the huskiness provides gravitas, you know? I have a high-pitched Asian voice. I have no gravitas, but this guy was like, <laughs> gravitas. How many of you want to know what the heavenly sanctuary is made out of? And he whispers, how many of you really want to know? So everyone's like leaning forward. And he says really slow, the heavenly sanctuary is made of, pause for dramatic effect, heavenly stuff. <laughs> the Bible does not reveal what the heavenly sanctuary is made out of. The Bible just reveals there is a... Uh, if, you don't disagree with num- if you disagree with number one, then you need to re-listen to seminars one through five. Amen, everybody? Amen. Number two... It casts a shadow over the all-sufficient atonement of Jesus on the cross. And I would submit to you is that the cross is just as central to a Seventh-day Adventist than to any other denomination in Christianity. Amen? It is the beginning point. It is by means where blood is spilt on our behalf. And this blood is Jesus' blood. But the question is, what does Jesus' blood do? Washing our sins is one component, but what happens to sin? And what are the ramifications for the universe regarding the cross? Amen? And this is where the theme, the great controversy, comes into play. Not the book, the great controversy, but the theme. Amen, everybody? The great controversy answers this. Uh, you have the audit analogy and the hospital record analogy and not temporary forgiveness. The audit analogy is, is that the, a lot of people think, this is, this is a common misunderstanding, that Jesus died for my sins in the courtyard. Then Jesus goes into the heavenly, uh, the, the, the heavenly holy place and he's doing something which I don't know. Then he goes into the most holy place and I need to be waiting for him to come out and I'm nervous because my name might come up again. And if my name comes up, I'll need atonement again. I'll need another savior. Does that sound like a Christ-centered way of being, of being atoned? Is that what we talked about in the last five, semin- or last, last five seminars? Not at all. Okay? But that is a common misunderstanding. Um, the audit analogy is this. When someone comes and, 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 and they audit all your finances, your finances are done. Yes? There's no more transactions that are taking place. But someone comes in as reviewing the work that has already been done. Another analogy is in the hospital records, you come to the hospital, you're sick. You come to the hospital and you're getting treatment. For every piece of treatment that you get, there is a record that, that remains. Upon leaving the sanctuary, you have an attending physician who comes and looks at everything that the physician has done. You're already healthy, you're already about to be discharged, but one guy's just making sure that all the records are safe. The work in the most holy place is not more for the human beings on earth, but we said that last summer is really for who? The universe. The universe. Okay, we looked at the three components of the judgment. 
Uh, you have the investigative judgment, which is really for the entire universe. You have the millennial judgment, is really for all of, hopefully all of us in this room, amen, the redeemed. And you have the executive judgment, which is for the, the wicked, who will be, um, who will be, um, who will be wicked, okay? Um, we do not believe in temporary forgiveness. Amen, friends? Jesus did not die for us and gave us temporary forgiveness, but the real judgment is happening in the most holy place. The most holy place confirms what Jesus did at the cross. Why are there a lot of people who, uh, who don't believe in the sanctuary? This is one answer that comes from Great Controversy, page 599. Many a portion of scripture which learned men pronounce mystery or Passover as unimportant is full of comfort and instruction to him who has been taught in the school of Christ. One reason why many theologians have no clearer understanding of God's word is they close their eyes to what? Truths which they do not wish to practice. So it is not the intellectual capacity which allows you to arrive at a conclusion, but it is the heart that drives the mind. Amen? If you really, really don't want to do it, you will find an intellectual reason not to do it. At Campus Ministries, we say this. You take a sinner and you educate them. And what do you get? You get an educated sinner. Yes? Just because you are smarter does not mean you have a, a predisposition to righteousness. You just have a predisposition to more intelligent sin. Amen? As understanding of Bible truth depends not so much on the power of intellect brought to the search as on the singleness of what? Purpose. The earnest longing after what? Righteousness. And really, I pray at the end, in the beginning of this or at the end of this, it's not, I hope this isn't tickling your curiosity of what's happening and this isn't a biblical discourse and, and in complicated theology, but we are all here thirsting and hungering after righteousness. Amen? There are different shades of Adventism because of the sanctuary doctrine. Uh, in my humble estimation, I believe there are five. One, you have evangelical Adventists, and I'm not going to point out um, who, who they are and give you examples, and we're not, I don't want to go too much into this. But I believe as young Adventists, you should know what, where the state of the church is today. This is not an American phenomenon. I've traveled around the world. You see these shades all around the world. Uh, some more in America and Europe and Australia than others, uh, but they are all over the world. One is evangelical Adventists. Evangelical Adventists believe the same thing as evangelicals do. Jesus died for me. I'm saved. And it's basically restricting Jesus' ministry only to the courtyard ministry, the cross. Uh, there's no difference between evangelical and evangelical Adventists and evangelicals except for one thing. They keep the Sabbath. Okay? So they just if, if you think you are a Seventh-day Adventist and you're, you're the same as any other denomination, but you just go to church on Saturday, then you might be an evangelical Adventist. Number two is a progressive Adventist. Progressive Adventist does not believe in the inspiration of Scripture, does not believe in its authority, does not believe that uh, we are, uh, are to be instructed by it in any way. Progressive Adventists do not believe in heavenly sanctuary at all, period. Uh, many of them, uh, and depending on which side you, you look at, and there's many types of progressive Adventists, they believe that truth continues to change. We need to continually be adapted to it. Um, and there are some extreme uh, progressive Adventists that do not even believe that Jesus was the Son of God. What? He was, 
culture is a powerful motivation sister. And that's a, lot of, that's a, that's a natural, natural question to ask. Why are they even Adventists? Ask a lot of Catholics, why are you Catholic? Ask a lot of Jews, why are you Jewish? Uh, the Adventist culture is strong. The veggie, long, the veggie links, the, the force is powerful with them. <laughs> the force is powerful with them. Um, progressive Adventists are naturally more intellectual. They will be first to receive uh, historical criticism. And if you guys should, you guys should really get into a uh, study of, of hermeneutics and uh, how you study scripture. Uh, we believe the Bible, I believe the Bible is 100% inspired by God. Okay? It does not contain truth. It is truth. If it contains truth, it is up to the human mind to decipher which is truth and which is not. And there are different versions of progressive Adventists out there. There is, um, they're, they're part of a larger movement in Christianity. Um, there's one manifestation of, of, I call them ultra-libs, flaming libs or whatever, just, just to be funny. We all have nomenclature, and, and, uh, and some, people, some of you guys hate nomenclature. That's fine. We, we still love you. Uh, they call it the Jesus Seminar. Have you guys heard of Jesus Seminar? Now, I don't know if progressive Adventists are part of the Jesus Seminar, but this is the same kind of school of thinking. They'll actually go through the writings of Jesus, not the writings of Jesus, the, uh, the four Gospels. And they'll say, hey, the four Gospels contain truth. The four Gospels are not truth. They contain truth. Do you guys see the nuance between the two? So they'll have a humongous seminar, kind of like this, scholars of first class all over the world coming together, and they'll have a PowerPoint in the front, and they'll, have, they'll put a particular verse, a particular saying of Jesus. And in that saying, they'll say, you know, blessed are the poor, and, and some kind of a beatitude or something. And they'll say, how many of you think that this is inspired? How many of you think this is not inspired? And if you think it's inspired, you put like a red marble or a blue. I forgot what color marble. You put a marble. I don't know why marbles, but they have marble. And then if you, don't, if you believe it not to be inspired, you believe another marble. If you don't care, you put another marble. And they put it into a black bag. They catch all the marbles. And they come into the front table, and they pull all the marbles out. And they say, okay, it looks like the Reds have it. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this verse is inspired. And they go to the next verse. And it becomes an intellectual exercise to see what is inspired or not. And they're using their study of culture to determine what is truth. Yes? They're using culture as the basis for what is truth. And so they're saying, if that's what occurred back then, then today, the source of truth comes from our culture as well. Does that make sense? Third, you have historical Adventists. Historical Adventists are those Adventists who, who love history. <laughs> they, they, they believe that the pioneers uh, were, were um, the ideal to be achieved. Yes? And so they believe Adventism must now not must revert back to the 1800s when Ellen White was around. We must wear clothes like the pioneers. We must eat like the pioneers. We must sound like the pioneers. Whatever they did, we must do. And what happens is this. I gave a seminar on this a couple years ago. You'll have a pendulum effect that you'll go swinging from the historical, going to the progressive, going back to the historical, to the progressive, and many young people have swung out of the church, period, as a result. Yes? Then number four, you have biblical Adventists. Uh, biblical Adventists are people who believe in the Bible. And, I, and hopefully that's where we all of us are today. But the problem is, everybody thinks they are a biblical Adventist. Yes? 
And lastly, you have separationist Adventists. And I, I don't know if I would call them Adventists, but they are, they're not really part of the Adventist church, but they, they believe in Adventism. Uh, they believe the church is Babylon. They believe everything is Babylon. And so everything you've got to come out of it, everything is pagan, the microphone is pagan, the suits are pagan, ties are pagan, water is pagan. So we need to leave and have clean digestive tracts, which I don't understand the, the connection between those two things. Okay? I don't mean to sound uh, too, too facetious about that, but it's, there, there are some interesting motifs there. Okay? Shepherd's Rod will be one manifestation of separation Adventist, yeah. So they're like any group but the one, one thing that they probably would say is that the Adventist church is an apostasy and that the Adventist church is Babylon. I'll say this, Ellen White does say the Adventist church will never be Babylon. The Adventist church, there's, there's a lot of junk that, that probably would be happening in the church, yeah? I, I'm, I'm being a young per- I still think of myself as a young person. I'm in the ministry. I'll mention there's a lot of junk that's going in the church. But I'll say this, there's a lot of good stuff in the church as well. And you've got to be in the church, and change happens from the inside out. It's easy to go out and be a purist and point your finger back in, but no change will happen. And uh, this, is, this, is the, this, is one, this is the basic premise of the philosophy of GYC. We need to get involved in church. Okay? Young people, we have ideals. Amen? Let's take the scripture, and let's believe it, and let's run with it. Let's not be discouraged by all the junk that we see. Okay? And, and, and to be real, every human institution has junk. Amen? And if you think there's another institution that doesn't have junk, then you're just weird. And I say it with all love and Christian respect and courtesy and, and a smile. You know? um, but we, we just need good people who, are, who can be in the church, Christ-centered, Bible-based, appropriately Adventist, and, and, and start working in the church for the Lord of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me just share. I got to share this with you. I got to share this with you. Uh, Mark Finley, awesome guy. You guys know who Mark Finley is? He's a tall, lanky guy who preaches a lot. Okay. Wonderful guy. And he says this: When the rain came down at Noah's time, where was the safest place to be? Inside the ark. And we think the ark was an air-conditioned love boat, but it wasn't. That love boat was made out of wood, and I don't think circulation of air was on Noah's concern. He didn't have an HVAC system in, at the, at, in, 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 in the ark. And inside the ark was also what? And animals give off scents and gifts, and then they're, on, they're in a boat with water, unstable. So you just take all, you put animals, people, and shake, 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 shake. <laughs> close all the doors, close all the windows, because if you open the windows, what's going to come in? So shake, 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 shake. Now this is a Justin Kim version of Mark Finley's comment, okay? <laughs> On earth, where was the safest place to be? Inside the ark. Amen? Now is there junk in the ark? Yeah, but, but hey, deal with it. And it's, and it's, slow. it's going to be over soon. Okay? So as young people, let's just keep our eyes on Jesus, on no one else, and let's, let's work for the Lord Jesus in the church. Amen? Amen? Because our eyes should be on Jesus in the sanctuary, not on the priest in the earthly sanctuary.
there are two main arguments which I'd like to go through, and this comes from Desmond Ford. Okay? And, this, and, and, and you may think, man, why can't these guys get with it? These guys are brilliant scholars of the Seventh-day Adventist faith, but they left the church. And in some kind of weird way, we have to kind of thank them for their apostasy because whenever the church goes through discouragement or tribulation or hard times, God's people must always go back to the Word of God and study. Get back on their knees and study. And, and, and this is a, their, their faith is being, being tested. Uh, a lot of people left without going back to Scripture because they said, oh, this is, this is junk, and then they, they just left. Argument number one comes from Hebrews chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, go to Hebrews chapter 6 right now. I know it's on the PowerPoint, but we've got to develop the habit of actually opening our Bibles rather than just sitting and watching YouTube videos. Amen? Hebrews chapter 6. Now, this section is a little bit more advanced, and if you don't understand it, that's okay. God will still bless you. Amen? Amen. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. The Bible reads, Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters into that within the veil, where the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're not going to actually go into the, 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 the details of this, the context, but I want, to get, I want to just get this across. In verse 19, it says, Jesus, Jesus is our hope. Jesus is the anchor of our soul. This hope is sure and steadfast. And Jesus enters into within the veil. Question. When Jesus ascended into heaven, where did he go? Holy place or most holy place? Now, praise the Lord that you guys gave that answer because that answer is incorrect, but it's indicative that you understood the past five seminars. Amen? When Jesus went to heaven, he started his holy place ministry. And for many, many, many decades, Seventh-day Adventists said, when Jesus went to heaven, he went to the holy place. Holy place. Holy place. Holy place. Then in 1844, he moved to the most holy place. Most holy place. Most holy place. In comes Dudley Canwright, in comes Ballinger, in comes Desmond Ford, and they articulate this verse. And they say in verse 19, which enters into that within the veil, and they actually go into the Greek. And they said in the, within the veil, there's one veil that, that separated the outside from the holy place, and then another veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place. You guys catch me so far? And then in English, this is the word veil, and this is the word veil. But in Greek, these two have different words. Well, guess which word do you think it is? Seventh-day Adventists were, were clasping their hands and we just hope it's this one. Because if it's this one, it all makes sense and we're justified and we're... Whew. We looked at the Greek and guess which one it was? It was this one. So for a time period, we were just like, oh, well, we'll just ignore that verse and not talk about it. But this verse kept sticking around, sticking around, and sticking around. Which means, when Jesus went to heaven, he went to the most holy place? And we're scratching our heads. And in Australia, a third of the church leaves. Because if Jesus went into the most holy place when he ascended, 1844 means nothing. Seventh-day Adventist Church means Nothing. David Atonement, nothing. Cleansing the sanctuary, nothing. DNR, nothing. DNR does not mean does not resuscitate. It means Daniel and Revelation, okay? <laughs> nothing. What do we do with this? 
In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us, through the what? So we looked at this first, and I'm like, man, hey, maybe this whole flesh will give more light, give, uh, uh, put more flesh to the, whatever the idiom is supposed to say. I don't forgot the idiom. Anyway, and having a high priest over the house of God, and we looked at this, and guess one, guess what? This was also indicative of the most holy place. So now we started getting discouraged. And praise the Lord, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, because of the Desmond Ford crisis, in response to Desmond Ford, got together, and we, we studied the Word of God together. And they called it the Daniel and Revelation Study Committee. They presented, they, they, they presented their findings, and they came with six books, and they're called the Darkom series. And I encourage every Seventh-day Adventist to buy it and read it. You can buy it and put it up on your bookshelf. It looks nice. It's a nice rainbow-like backing, and it looks nice for your book collection. But read it. Okay? D-A-R-C-O-M. It sounds like a transformer, okay? Darkom. Evil transformer. Okay, it's a it's an it's a uh, um, abbreviation for Daniel and Revelation Committee. I guess that's what it is. Uh, verse twenty through the veil. So what happened? How are you guys anxious? Is this a problem for you? Like I was pulling my hair out when I learned. I'm like, what is going? on? I wanted to tear Hebrews out because it didn't fit the rest of Scripture. Now, should you ever do that? Okay, you want to step back and say, okay, when there's a contradiction in Scripture, it's never a contradiction. Sometimes you need to step back and you'll see a larger truth that emerges. Okay? Scripture is always uh, uh, awesome. <laughs> this word, as we found in, in Greek, the, the associated in this word is enkinizo, meaning inaugurated. Profound. What happened? In number 7, verse 10, 11, 84, and 88. We can't get into it. But the most uh, holy place... Only one person was allowed in the most holy place. Who's that? It's the high priest. And the high priest entered into the most holy place only once a year. Once a year. And Yom Kippur, very good. Yom Kippur, once a year. Like, how is this possible? Upon reading more of the boring parts of Scripture, in, especially in Numbers, Numbers, number seven, we find that there is another moment where the, where the high priest enters into the most holy place. We call it the inauguration. But when Jesus went into heaven, he did go into the most holy place. Now, in the, in the, in the Hebrew calendar, the, the high priest entered the most holy place once a year, but the inauguration only happens once in the history of the lifetime of the sanctuary. You understand? So what happens is, in the Mosaic Temple, they put all the stuff together, set it up, and when everything got set up, they had an inauguration ceremony, and the high priest would go in, and with, also with blood... And he'd go in and he'd dab every item of the sanctuary. In my imagination, it's as if he's turning everything on for the first time. He goes into the most holy place, dabs blood, powering it up. Goes here. And when he turns everything on, the sanctuary is now open. (laughs) And he starts formally his ministry in the holy place. Amen? Does that make sense? So then what happened? This is, this is, this is awesome. When, when, when we got this, Exodus, go to Exodus 40. Go to Exodus 40. Let's, go, let's actually turn to there. Exodus 40. I think this is the verse that we're talking about. Exodus 40, verse 9 and 10. 
You shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is therein. You shall hallow it and all the vessels thereof and it shall be holy. You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all its vessels and, the, and sanctify the altar and it shall be an altar most holy. It was the job of the high priest to anoint everything before he starts the daily sacrifices and the yearly sacrifices. If this is clear, say amen. Amen. The anointing of the sanctuary included even the ark in the most holy place. And in Daniel 9.24, very interesting. A, a prophecy that's alluding to, to, to Jesus the Messiah. This is, this is Jesus' mission statement in, in, in verity. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people, upon the holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the what? And this is the most holy place. It was Jesus' job to go up to heaven and to turn on the heavenly sanctuary ministry. Amen? Before Jesus turned on the heavenly sanctuary ministry, was there stuff happening, going on in the heavenly sanctuary? Nothing going on. Amen? Argument number two. Argument number two. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12, this also comes from, from Dr. Ford. Go to Hebrews. Hebrews. I'm so excited I forgot what Hebrews is. <clears throat> Hebrews. Oh, there it is. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. I don't know about you, but this just, this just wazoo's my hickory pucks. I don't know what that means, but... Okay. Like, even when there's a theological crisis, we praise the Lord. Let's go back to Scripture and find out what's going on. And we're we, we, we realizing more stuff about the inauguration. And the inauguration has parallels to Revelation 4 and 5. And it's about pen. Anyway, guys, going on and on. Hey, Hebrews 9 12. 9 12. 9 12. Are you there? Hebrews 9 12. Where is verse 12? It's after verse 11. Okay, verse 12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves. But by his own blood, he entered once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. A simpler way of saying it is this. Jesus entered into the most holy place and holy place. We put that together, the sanctuary building. He entered it one time using his own blood, not the blood of goats or, that's goats or, not of, goats or calves. What kind of goats and calves are these? If these are day of atonement goats and calves, then Desmond Ford is right. Meaning this. In order to get into the most holy place, you would use a special kind of blood, and that blood is the goat of goats and calves. Okay? So this wording, goats and calves, is always associated with the day of atonement. And here Desmond Ford says, hey, Paul is using the phrase goats and calves, and this is associated that Jesus went straight into the most holy place. If these goats and calves are the Day of Atonement goats and calves, then Desmond Ford is right. Question. How many of you guys think this is the Day of Atonement goats and calves? Praise the Lord, none of you raise your hands. If you did, I'll write your name down and report you to the authorities. Okay? I'm, I'm being facetious. In the Greek, in the LX Lex, the, the Septuagint, the word for goats, there's two words for goats in Greek. English is so limited. You see one goat, that's a goat. You see another goat, that's a goat. But in Greek, it's two totally different words. So weird, Greek people. Okay, Goats. You got tragos and you got moskos. 
Okay, now I know this is wordplay and it's kind of weird, but get, follow me here, okay? Tragos are the inauguration goats of number seven. Moscos are the day of atonement goats. When we look at the Greek, guess which goats are mentioned by Paul? It's tragos. Kimaros are the atonement goats of Leviticus 16. And we see, oh, I didn't put the, I didn't put the next verse there. But we see that in the, in the Septuagint, those goats are not day of atonement goats, but they're inauguration goats. So what Paul is talking about in the book of Hebrews is not the day of atonement, but that, hey, we have a better priest, we have a better sanctuary, we have a better high priest, because Jesus went straight into the most holy place to turn on the entire sanctuary. Does that make sense? And that's why if he has access into the most holy place, and now he's ministering on behalf in the holy place, and he'll judge us in the most holy place, he's going to come out, how much better is this than our earthly sanctuary? And he's talking to the Hebrews, hey Hebrews, get your minds off of this, put your eyes towards the Lord Jesus. Amen? If you have reservations to the, 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 first, um, the first reservation, uh, or if you agree with one of the first reservations mentioned in the first slide, I have some extra uh, verses here. Exodus fifteen seventeen. This is huge. Fifteen seventeen. Uh, Bible reads, You shall bring them in and plant them in the mountain of thy inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which thou hast made for thee to dwell in, in the what? Sanctuary, O Lord, which thy hands have established. In Hebrews nine eleven, it says, But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. In Revelation 11, uh, 11, 19, the temple of God was opened where? In heaven. Is there ample evidence that there is a sanctuary in heaven? Now, this is a question that I always had. I went to a Jewish college, and I'm studying the sanctuary. And I'm like, and I'm, I'm looking at my, my, my ortho friends. I call them orth, Orthodox Jew friends, orthos. And uh, it's, it's not derogatory. It's, it's very, very, anyway. Uh, and, and I said, man, do these guys, do these guys know? Do these guys know? And for many years, I thought, man, these Jews have no idea about the earthly sanctuary pointing to the heavenly sanctuary. It wasn't until later I heard a sermon by Clifford Goldstein. How many of you guys know Clifford Goldstein? Weird character, Clifford Goldstein. One of the awesome writer. And he himself is also of of Jewish descent. And he's reading into the Babylonian Talmud and and all these, these obscure Jewish writings. And get this. Just like in Adventism, are there some people who get the doctrine of the sanctuary in Adventism? Are there some people who don't get it in Adventism? Are there, are there Adventists who, have, who fully understand what Jesus is doing in the heavenly sanctuary? And are there some Adventists who have no idea? Just like in Adventism, it's the same thing in the, in the, back in the Israelite times. There are some Israelites who had no idea that this pointed forward to Jesus. And then some of them had completely understood that this pointed forward to Jesus. And there's writings, and he's, he has, he's listing this. And he says, one person writes, um, the, the Mosaic sanctuary is only but a reflection of the heavenly sanctuary. And that the Shekinah glory is a shadow of the eternal realities in heaven. And get this, another person writes this. Another uh, rabbi, you know, something, Ben something, I don't know, I forgot the name. I've I got to get those slides up there. But he says this, we have, uh, the high priest here on earth is a reflection 
of a true heavenly high priest ministering on our behalf. This is coming from a Jewish writer. And get this. He says, and his name is Michael. Now, the rest of evangelical theology believes Michael is an archangel. That's, that's just uh, one of the other angels. But we know, you compare all the verses of Michael, and Michael is ultimately who? It's Jesus Christ. Did the ancient world know? Just like today, some did, some didn't. Just like today, some of us do, some of us don't. Our eyes need to be totally focused on what's happening in heaven. And the more that we know what's happening in heaven, it'll have eternal ramifications for all of us. Amen? And I believe GYC is a manifestation of Bible prophecy. For far too long, we've had winds of doctrine blowing around, and one generation becoming uber-conservative, another generation becoming uber-liberal, one generation saying, we don't believe in the sanctuary, another generation saying, we only need the sanctuary, and everything is Babylon, and, and, and cutting people out. We need a generation who has their Bible in our hands, in our minds, in our hearts, and our eyes are focused on Jesus' ministry in the sanctuary. Amen? How many of you are happy and confident to be a Seventh-day Adventist Christian? How many of you want your addresses to reflect Jesus? How many of you want your clothes to reflect Jesus? How many of those you want your, 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 your glasses, your sunglasses, your chapstick, your shoelaces, the saliva in your mouth to reflect Jesus? How many of you want your, your deodorant to smell like Jesus? Now, I'm not being facetious. Everything about the sanctuary was about what? Even smells were holy. We need a radical generation of people are Jesus-oriented. I'm not talking about hippies, amen? We need Jesus people. How many of you want to be Jesus people? Stand up for the final benediction, if you don't mind. Let us pray. Lord in heaven, Lord, look upon this humble room and Father, see the people who stand. Father, see the people who rose their hands. Father, standing and raising hands is, is our simple actions. But we also ask that you look upon our hearts. Uh, do those things only which you can do, Lord. And, uh, Father, we, whether we understand this or not, Lord, we ask that you help us calibrating that to the Bible. But really at the end, Lord, may the Lord Jesus be in our hearts. Lord, you are ministering on our behalf in the heavenly sanctuary. May we be sober to this eternal heavenly reality. And we thank you so much that you are doing this. But Father, just like the ancient Jews, may we not treasure these truths only to ourselves. But may we be a blessing to Egypt, to Moab, to Edom, to Sidon, to to Assyria, and also to Babylon, Lord. And Father, grant us the courage to call people out of Babylon. To call people out of the earthly sanctuary and point them to the heavenly sanctuary. This is my humble prayer for myself and for every person in this room. In Jesus' name, and let us all say, Amen, 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 Amen. God bless you all.
This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.